I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Surprise. It's hump day. And? And? We're we're back. And we're you've here. got a you've got a new episode. I think it, we've arrived. Yeah, we arrived because this isn't a bonus episode. So here's the here's the deal, folks. Lay back, it on me. Back in the day, we were doing uh, we were doing all of our Monday recordings, and we were in this groove doing Monday recordings. It was really fun. But then, like every once in a while, something would happen. Maybe it was like something in the news or something. And we did like I don't know how many, maybe like fifteen or twenty in total over a couple of years where we would do these episodes called just a routine checkup and just the routine checkup episodes would be like something happened in the news. Something was like relevant that we, we had to like touch on that week. Or even occasionally they were like follow up episodes of like a Monday. So let's say we talked about this topic and we learned a little bit, uh, some more stuff about it yeah. in the, in the, in the sort of following days of yeah. releasing that episode, then we might release like a follow up like that. Yeah. So we, we, but you're right. We did that like very we did. We didn't do a lot of those. Episodes, we did a few but, of them. So if you've been yeah. an OG listener, you might have seen like a just the routine checkup episode come out. And then COVID happened, and right around that time, actually, it was a year ago. It was a year ago this coming Friday that we released our first Feel Good Friday episode, and that was in response to COVID. And basically, it was like, okay, a what the fuck is COVID? Let's try to deep dive on that, and B times are, suck right now. So let's like, let's try to inject a little bit of lightness going into the weekend. And we call those our feel good Friday episodes. And the podcast kind of evolved over the last year, quite a bit. Uh, hopping on board with CBC was a big thing for us and trying to navigate how these feel good Friday episodes would kind of fit in, in our, our, our weekly schedule. And it's interesting because we were having a lot of like very serious conversations and we had called the episodes feel good Friday mm-hmm. episodes, but we were having a lot of these like medical professionals on to talk about COVID and the state of the world. Yeah, and yeah. so we decided that we also wanted to make sure that we were doing like uh, having a conversation between the four of us where we were just sort of laughing and having Keep a good time too and keeping it light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that sort of grew too. So yeah, and, it, it and, really has evolved. And then ultimately, and then ultimately what we realized is that the conversation where we talked to a Harvard researcher might fit better on a different day than when we talk about cum and what people put up their ass or yeah. Or my butthole exploding. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We just felt like yeah. maybe those two conversations needed two different homes. <laughs> Yeah. And also, and also, yeah. And also just, it's again, it's like talking about the evolution of the podcast. It's just, it's just one of those things where, uh, and you know, not to get too far into this, but now we're on YouTube and, and these, these host episodes that we're doing, releasing them on YouTube, it just sort of like made sense for us to go, okay, wait a minute. Let's, why don't we have our normal Monday releases? Like we've always been doing where we talk to wonderful, beautiful, interesting, fascinating guests who have lived with illness and are, are talking about the hardships that they've been through and, you know, finding humor and finding lightness, nothing's changing there. 
And then on these Friday episodes where we're talking to Harvard researchers or medical professionals or scientists, how about we just take that and just plop it right in the middle of the week? And we'll go back to that routine checkup kind of uh, um, uh, sort of special that we had been doing back in the day. Because those those conversations have been... <clears throat> it has been a, a really, really, they've been fucking awesome. A, a, along, I mean, along with the, with the conversations of us being really silly together. It has like, I've learned so much in the selfishly last for mm. myself. Those have been amazing yeah. because we're speaking to people yeah. who really know their shit. Yeah. And I'm going, wow, I'm learning for the first time since Ever. school. And so, so, so this is where we are now. And this is what we're going to be doing going forward. Mondays, the same old sick boy episodes that you've always been listening to. OG. Wednesdays, hump day. Today, we're going to give you these routine checkups. And these are the conversations that we have with other folks out in the world. They may not necessarily be sick. They may or may not be healthcare professionals or professionals within health sciences. They know a thing or two about a thing or two. They, there are typically someone who knows something about something. And then Fridays, it's just us fucking idiots talking about shit and and cum. whatever and, and what cum. i mean cum. not really but like i mean definitely like we're being, definitely we're be being we're being silly it's basically AF. the conversations that we wouldn't have in front of the harvard professors or like, the conversations <laughs> that we feel um uh, thoroughly embarrassed to put ahead to, of those episodes yeah yeah that's exactly <laughs> how yeah, i yeah, feel yeah, yeah exactly there yeah. you go yeah that's that, that that really sums it up so that's why we're here today on wednesday and you can expect to hear us <laughs> Oh Jesus, Jeremy. Oh God! And from now on, from here on out, this will be the this will be as silly as we get before we talk. Before we have really yeah, so, meaningful conversations with people who yeah, are doing really it. cool stuff. So welcome to boring Wednesdays, and uh, <laughs> no. we'll have fun with you. No, I guess no. kind of today. You not know too what? much fun. We'll just learn that, a lot. I know that you were you were joking there, Brian, but uh, I think folks are really going to see how much you were joking. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> as we throw into uh, this first uh, official Wednesday drop. Oh, fuck. Routine. It's Asante to get today. That's right. Asante yes. Houghton, uh, an amazing guest coming out of Toronto, doing incredible, incredible fucking important work with the Reach Out Response Network in Toronto. I was just throwing to you because your mic is on, Lauren, so you could have chimed in. <laughs> <laughs> I thought this was boys only. <laughs> um, so this is a great conversation that we had with Asante, and uh, he's it's, the fucking best. He is. He really is the yeah, best. We awesome. hope you enjoy it, and uh, we're looking forward to giving you three fucking episodes a week. Jesus Christ, how are we going to do it? All right, folks, enjoy this conversation with Asante. We got this. Um, uh, okay. So anyway, all that aside, uh, sitting here with our new friend is Sante. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited to, to, to shoot the shit with you today because, um, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you know a whole lot about the podcast, but I'll put this out there. Sante, we, we speak to a lot of people, um, living with various illnesses and, mm-hmm. um, this all started about five years ago. And one of the, one of the things that, we kind of noticed, especially five years ago, still today, but but maybe a little bit differently today. Five years ago, there was there was definitely this like um, 
this this kind of hardcore stigma surrounding the notion of even talking about mental health and mental illness. Mm -hmm. And so in in light of that, we kind of made it our attempt to at least release one conversation a month within our catalog of, you know, four episodes a month where we focused on some sort of mental illness or some sort of story based on mental health. And so, um, which is why I'm, I'm feeling pretty, pretty excited to talk to you today because, um, uh, I've, I today have realized that Cam H in, in, uh, in Ontario, the center for addiction and mental health has named you one of the 150 top difference makers in mental health in Canada. Um, yeah, that happened. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so first of all, first of all, congrats. Thank you, thank you. for that. Yeah. And and secondly, why has Cam H put uh, why has Cam H put that much um, support behind you? Uh, Make your case. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> prove it to us. <laughs> uh, Google me. No. Uh, uh, no. But uh, for real, uh, you know, I just I spent so much time just talking about mental health, and I mean, realistically. Um, you know, coming for, from where I'm from, uh, you know, as like a young black guy from, you know, I grew up in the projects. I, I do most of my like nine to five work in, in like impoverished communities. Um, so for me, it's, it's about, uh, I guess, providing a voice uh, to people who look like me and who come from the places I come from uh, to talk about mental health. Because when I got in the game, there was no one like me talking about it. Um, so I've been like a real bridge uh, for folks who don't know what it's like to come from the places I come from, uh, to know what, you know, the experience of mental health and mental illness is in those places, but also like the mouthpiece for people who, you know, look like me and, you know, come from the places I come from to, you know, maybe highlight what mental health looks like for us um, through the lens that we, you know, see life or navigate life from. So I think that's a big part of it. Um, you know, I've, you know, I got into the game really just telling my own story mm -hmm. uh, through mental health and mental illness. And, um, you know, I, I've done that so many times, like probably over a thousand times now. Um, it, and and I think that really just, you know, pushed me into like <laughs> within the mental health industry anyways, into the spotlight. I was I, I get I get the gist of it. Um, you you've come from a, a background. You one of the things that that did stick out to me was that you said you've told your story a thousand times, and I hate to be that guy to ask you to tell your story the one thousandth and one one time <laughs> more. But um, but maybe maybe just like uh, just a, a kind of a quick overview, uh, Asante. How how has mental illness affected you, especially in your youth, like growing up? what, what is it that, um, what is it that kind of got you to the point that you are now working so tirelessly to make a difference in the world and the realm of mental health and mental illness? Well, you know, I, I think being a teenager who like, it's essentially my adolescence was completely derailed, uh, by depression and anxiety, uh, within myself, but also some other mental like illnesses that were happening within my family as well. So, it was like this double whammy effect. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a shitty thing to go through when like you're in high school and you're looking at everyone else and, you know, this may not be true, but it's like they're living their best lives and you're kind of just like, yo, I feel like taking mine, 
right? Um, yeah. And so, you know, for me, my motivation is I think about that kid, you know, 15, 16 years old, and maybe they feel isolated and they don't got nobody to talk to when, um, you know, there seems to be no outlet and no one understands them and you, and you feel completely alone. And I was that kid. So I tell my story to let other kids in that situation know that even if that's where you are now, it doesn't necessarily mean that's where you're going to be, where you're going to end up and mm-hmm. things can become better and change. So I, I wanted to, I, I'm curious about um, that like level of self-awareness where you, you begin to like understand that what you're going through uh, or experiencing at that time is depression or is this, <clears throat> this, um, these mental health issues because like I've, I myself have like, sort of like flirted with these times in my life where I'm feeling depressed and it seems like I, I don't really realize it in the moment. It's like, you know, after the fact, you're like, Oh mm. shit, you know, looking back on that yeah. period of six months or a year and, and look like I'm not a person who, who lives with depression, but I think I've felt depression for an extended period of time before. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious about your experience in how you sort of came to realize, especially in high school, because I feel like in high school, like there's so many things happening and like yeah. we're growing so as people inputs. and like, like you're trying to, you know, be this person you think other people want you to be. And there's like, it's so chaotic being in high school that, um, I'm, I'm imagining how, how tough it is to sort of like understand and experience depression while going through that. So what, like, what did that look like for you at that time? Uh, that's, that's a great question. And I think, you know, maybe the the best place to start is that I didn't even know that what I was going through was depression or anxiety. Mm-hmm. I just like, I thought I had like a personality issue. Um, and it's like, I look in the mirror and like hate myself because I thought the problem was me and not that I was dealing with mental illnesses, right? So um, it was it was really hard, man. Uh, high school, it's, I mean, first of all, high school is like a jungle. <laughs> I mean, yeah, in a lot of yeah. ways. It yeah, like, really is. Yeah. It's like yeah. a lot of savagery. Um, but, you know, beyond that, it's like everyone's trying to figure themselves out, right? And, you know, part of that process of figuring yourself out is actually like living a life and engaging in, in everything around you. And I just wasn't able to really do that. Um, you know, one, I was dealing with my own stuff, you know, with depression and anxiety, which like made it really hard to connect to anybody. Um, but I was also like in a lot of ways trying to take care of, you know, my mom who was struggling as well with things that she was experiencing. Um, and, you know, so for me, it was this double whammy of like, I can't go to the party cause I need to make sure my mom's okay. Or then there's always the other part of I don't go to the party because I feel anxious about it. Right. Um, And I mean, I know a lot nowadays people throw around, throw around the term anxiety and stuff like that. Like it's nothing but like clinical anxiety is like it's it's almost like, you know, you have this invisible barrier and the closer you get toward it, it's pushing you away. Mm. Um, that's like how it felt for me trying to leave my house every day. It's like the closer I would get to the door, the the stronger the resistance would be like to the extent that, you know, there were times where I would, I was literally like sitting on the floor in front of my door to leave the house. And I just couldn't, you know, make that final step of opening the door and going through it. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's it's a hard thing for people to understand if you haven't gone through it. Mm -hmm. What were, what were the, 
you know, like in hindsight, because I, I can totally relate to what you said there, Bri, like I've been there, but it's not until afterwards and like looking back in hindsight that I realized like, oh yeah, okay. Something was up. Something yeah. was going on there. And that's why I felt that way. That's why I didn't want to do these things. That's why I didn't want to have those social interactions, whatever it might have been. How long, at, like, I guess, like, how do you end up getting through that? And, and, and how much further down the line is it where you look back and then have these and like have a moment or whether it's a moment or like, you know, it's a gradual understanding of what was going on with you. And how did that shift your perspective of, who you are or who you were at that time? That's a great question. Um, for me, I, I would say it was more of a gradual shift. Uh, but, you know, you might laugh when when you hear the story. So like when it really started to, I wouldn't say click for me, but when I started to feel like, hmm, maybe that's what I'm going through. Um, I was watching like TV or something like that. I was like watching, I don't know, I was kind of like a nerd, right? So I was watching like A&E, like documentaries, <laughs> uh, right? So anyway, this commercial pops up and it's it's a commercial for Zoloft, right? And they start listing all the symptoms for depression and Zoloft is an antidepressant for anybody listening. Um, and they start listing like all the symptoms and... <laughs> I just started putting like check marks in my head beside every symptom. Mm. And I was like, holy shit, is that, is that what the fuck I've been dealing with? Yeah. <laughs> for, Isn't for, it crazy? Like, Zoloft commercial. That's, I mean, that's effective advertising right there. Dude, like, that's, you know, like, isn't it crazy how, you know, if you're going through something and you're, 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 you're in the depths of it, you're in the throes of it. And somebody, somebody really close to you, I think it's, I think especially people really close to you, maybe confront isn't the right word, but they're, they try to, talk to you about it mm-hmm. and you know someone someone that you really care about that you're too close to to hear clearly mm. could could basically word for word that Zoloft commercial like I think you're experiencing I think you're experiencing depression and mm. like and you and you could so easily be like get the fuck out of yeah, here fuck yeah. off yeah and then you hear it through a third you hear it indirectly <clears throat> in this commercial or like you know a conversation that you hear on the radio or something like that and you go like click hey I, I that that's me. It, but in, in terms of, cause you like, you, you sort you say they're like, you know, if somebody close to you says that stuff to you and it doesn't, it doesn't really connect with you. I guess I if totally they do it, I guess it, if they do it in a but, certain way, but like also if you, if you feel like you have somebody to close, close to, to talk about that stuff, then, then like that's, I can understand mm-hmm. being like that, but I, I'm, I'm curious to Sunday, did like you mentioned that your, you know, your, your mom and your, um, yeah, I guess your mom specifically, but was also going through things at the time. Did you feel like you had anybody that you could talk to about this stuff or was anybody in your life sort of saying to you at this time, like, Hey dude, like something, you know, seems off about you. Are you doing okay? Or, or was there not really anybody at, at that time that you could open up to? I mean, I, I think there was some version of that of like, yo, something's not right with this kid. He's just not behaving like, you know, someone that was, you know, 16, 17, 18, whatever is supposed to behave. Um, I know my brothers would definitely try to like approach me that way, but it wasn't necessarily like the, I have two older brothers, right? And it wasn't necessarily like the the kind of approach I needed. I know that they were really just trying to, you know, get me out of my shell because I was just like walls around me all the time uh, with the anxiety piece in particular. Um, so they just wanted me to like get outside and like interact with people and socialize and be out in the world and grow and learn and do all the things you're supposed to do in adolescence. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But, you know, being guys with the whole, like, machismo thing, I mean, it was kind of like, yo, dude, like, what's wrong with you, bro? Like, mm, yeah. You know, like, go aside, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> you know? And you're like, oh, um, yeah, that's all That's all I needed. <laughs> right? Um, so there's definitely, like, a recognition there, you know? And I don't, like, I'm not mad at them, you know what I'm saying? But it's, it's just, you know, if you don't have the vocabulary mm. or, or don't know how to have that conversation, how can you know how yeah. to have that conversation, yeah, right? So, yeah. And, so so well, I, well, I was going to say, what was the, what was the transition then into like, how did you go from that, that distraught young teenager uh, realizing that, wait, fuck, maybe I have depression from watching a Zoloft commercial <laughs> to, to someone who is like really um, shaking up the world of mental health as, as such a strong advocate, like where, when did that transition happen of, of becoming an advocate of actually doing that work to cultivate change? You know, that's, that's an interesting story because like, I didn't set out to be this guy. It wasn't like Mm. I was 16, 17, 18 and like, Hmm, this is what's going on. I want to talk about this shit. Um, (laughs) It was like the exact opposite. It was just like, I I just want to get through this and, live you know a quote-unquote normal life and you know forget that this part of my life ever happened because I was so ashamed of uh the person I was back then uh and so you know fast forward a little bit you know around say age 20 21 uh my mom started to get a lot better and then she jumped in she's like hey maybe you need to go talk to somebody um at first I was very resistant obviously like most people are um and then i just got so bad that it became my only recourse it was either that or like i'm gonna take my own life Mm. um so uh, i went to my family doctor about it uh told him my story he wrote a referral hooked me up with a therapist i was in a therapist room a few weeks later and you know uh the rest is kind of history there it wasn't my first try at therapy but it was definitely the one that i was committed to the most Mm. uh because the situation was just like so dire for me. Anyway, went through that process, helped me out immensely, had like the coolest therapist ever. She was just, she was kind of like the way we're talking now. It wasn't like this medical, like, how are you feeling language? Mm, like yeah. she yeah. called me out on my bullshit. Um, <laughs> she she kind of let me know like, yo, you kind of, you know, she, 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 she it was a lot of tough love, honestly. And I think that's what I needed. You know, I grew up playing sports. So like I respond to that shit. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so um, important but, how 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 important it is to have that person to to just have that relationship like to hit to hit the nail on the head that first mm-hmm. with that first go was it your first therapist like the first person you went to it was the first one i committed to it was probably yeah. the third person that i had seen and mm-hmm. the the first two were more of the kind of like softer kind of tell us yeah. everything you yeah. know that that yeah. kind of thing and yeah. that works for some people don't get me wrong but for me um i I, I, you know, I'm a Jamaican person, like my background is Jamaican and like messages are very direct in, in our culture. You know what I mean? And like, there's definitely this air of like, we can tell when people are bullshitting with us um, when they're just not getting to the point and trying to slowly get there. And I just mm. was feeling that was the vibe with uh, some of the therapists I was, you know, connected to in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, anyways, I thought that's like how everybody was going to be. But yeah, then right. I spoke to this woman. Um, she was just, she was awesome, bro. And like, um, mm-hmm. you know, I just, I improved really quickly just having the right person. Yeah. Um, and then I came out of that. Um, you know, I was like, I want to put all this behind me. Uh, but then an opportunity arose for me to get on stage and 
uh, tell my story. And uh, at that time, I didn't have enough like confidence in myself to say no because I was so nervous about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's so hilarious. Got, Not enough like, confidence yeah. to de- <laughs> yeah. decline. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you end up uh, doing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's amazing. <laughs> So yeah. So yeah. and was this your TEDx talk? Like, was this was? No, was this that? is way back in the day, okay, man. Okay, okay. I mean, like that that first talk was like the skeleton for what would become, mm. you know, the the TEDx talk. But mm-hmm. um, it was essentially like a version of the same presentation that's just been, you know, mm. I've been shaping over over time. But yeah, um, yeah, you know, I just got on stage and I started telling my story, and um. I didn't even know what the hell I was doing, to be honest. I was just like, shit, they asked me to do this. Well, fuck it. I'm going to do it. Figure it out kids in the room. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm nervous. Like, just like I, sweat dripping. Um, but I did it. The response was like amazing. And that, that was, you know, changed my life. Completely. Started, yeah. I, I just, yeah. I love how storytelling so often is like the catalyst to, to sort of, vaulting someone into a life of of work of advocacy like it, it's it, more often than not it seems like it it originates from a story like it from from mm. sharing a story and i think that's just like you know i i just think that's so it's, beautiful i was gonna say too like the the it's interesting to me how storytelling how therapeutic storytelling is because really mm. like that's what's happening at mm-hmm. at at therapy too when you start off your your I mean, hopefully the therapist isn't like, so tell me your story. Mm. But like, <laughs> hopefully through telling your story to your therapist, you're able to learn and understand things about yourself. These guys know uh, I've been a huge advocate for therapy lately. I like I've had the best experience going to therapy over nice. the past year. And it was my first time um, going into it. And it's, <clears throat> I'm I'm just so blown away with how incredibly um powerful it can be to talk to somebody um so openly about the things that that you're going through was was it for for you was it was it that experience with therapy that really made all of the difference or did did they um have to prescribe you medication as well for your depression and anxiety or or like was there many different facets to the therapy or or was it mostly talk therapy that made the difference for you you know for me it was mostly talk therapy um, excuse me. Um, I, I did, you know, kind of dabble in the anxiety medication, but, um, only insofar as I needed to like, stop having severe anxiety attacks, just like walking down the street. Um, and once I got yeah. that stuff under control, it, it really allowed me to have like a clearer mind to engage with everything that I was learning in therapy to like put all that stuff into practice. Mm. Um, cause you know, the thing about therapy that we don't talk about is like, the therapist isn't there to solve your problems. The therapist is there to help you figure out your problems and, you know, provide you with guidance and direction for you to come up with your own answers. Dude, yes. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. I've never heard anybody put it that way, but that's the way that like I, that's like another realization that I've had going through that. It, like, I feel like sometimes I say something to my therapist and I'm sitting there <laughs> waiting for her to say, okay, here's what you have to do. But like, it just ends up where you're talking through things. And it's, it's kind of like a a coach in the sense that like, they can't play the fucking game for you. Mm -hmm. All they can do is tell you what like the best techniques are, the best tactics are, the best strategy to employ. And you have to go and actually do it. But if you can actually learn and understand 
what those things are before you face those situations mm-hmm. where you're actually, you know, struggling, then then it's not going to help to. Yeah. Um, and the idea <clears throat> has to be and the idea has to be authentic to you. It's kind of like yeah. it's kind of like how they lay it out at the beginning of Inception, where they talk about like why mm-hmm. why Inception is like impossible. And it's like because you can't plant an authentic idea in somebody's head. It has to be homegrown. It has to be from them. And a therapist is, I guess, what helps you plant those seeds yourself Mm. for those ideas to grow into, you know, whatever they become into the things that are able to help you. Yeah, totally. Um, Asante, I wanted to ask too, like, was, did you find that like a lot of the experience, like similarity, did you find that there's any similarities between your experience with therapy and your experience with storytelling and, and speaking in public about what you've been through? In some respect, yeah, you know, because one of the things that you learn to do in therapy is you learn to get to the, you know, the why, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's not superficial. Um, well, if, if, you know, it's the process is working, it, it's not superficial. Um, and in storytelling, it's the same thing, right? It's, it's you know, in, in storytelling, they say show, don't tell. Mm-hmm. And they say that because... If, if you're showing, then you're being superficial. Um, or sorry, if you're telling, then you're being superficial. Uh, yeah. But if you're showing, then you're really getting to the meat of, of whatever it is you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, um, you know, being able to express your own narrative in a way that makes sense, you know, to yourself and other people yeah. um, is like the root of, like, internal work you know I, I in, in the work that i do i'm always talking about self-awareness i think it's like the most important skill that any of us could master and i think it is a skill i think it's something that you have to like practice and work on like reflection and introspection and you know you look at like uh like you know ancient greek philosophy and they, they talk about you know what is it to introspect and you know that kind of shit right <laughs> and, 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 and and anyway um you know, the I once read or heard or saw in a video, I don't know, but the better you are at self-awareness is the better you are at understanding others. And if you understand others well, then you know how to tell a story because you know what's going to resonate with people. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah, yeah. That's, awesome. that's great. favorite one-hit wonder or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have or that tv show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon now what if we could fix it i'm francesca ramsey and i'm delon grant and after 20 years of friendship we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called let me fix it each episode we'll dig into our favorite celebrities shows and brands of yesteryear and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today think of our show as an intervention but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I I am dying to to get into the um to get into the the topic of what you are working on uh, most recently, um, which is the Reach Out Response Network. Mm-hmm. Um, this is something that I that I think is like hella important. Um, super important, bro. Su- super, super fucking important, and has been has been like really, uh, especially over the last year, has been like um, 
has been quite evident that like this is something that is needed across across our country but not just our country i think i think like globally this mm-hmm. is something that needs to be uh, implemented can you can you give our listeners a, a brief rundown on on what reach out response network is all about so uh the reach out response network um that's uh and a, a nonprofit that you know a friend and i we formed in order to advocate for uh, non-police-led mobile crisis um, emergency response. So uh, what all that means is, you know, normally uh, the kind of default has been if someone's having a, a crisis, whether it's mental health or addiction or whatever, it shows up as like, oh, we don't know how to handle this shit. Um, you know, you call 911 and the police show up and, you know, police, not for nothing, they, they just have so much on their plate. They're like the default catch-all, let's handle a problem that firemen or firefighters, I should say, and and you know, an ambulance can't handle. So police do everything else. Um, yeah. It's putting a lot of pressure on police officers. Um, it's like you know, yeah. earlier in the day, you just walked away from a call where you know maybe you're breaking up a fight, and now you got to walk into a mental health situation while mm. you're still amped up from the yeah. previous call, right? Mm. Um, why would we, you know, for one, put police officer is in that situation? Um, but also, you know, put civilians in that situation as well, being responded to by someone who, I mean, not for nothing, police go through a lot of trauma, right? Um, And so, you know, essentially our idea was, why don't we have people who are the most equipped to respond to a mental health crisis or distress situation be the people actually responding to those situations? Mm. Seems like such a simple idea, but... Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like like expecting your, it's like, Oh, I have a brain tumor and I need this out of my fucking head stat and going, well, a general physician knows a whole lot about health. Let's get them to do it. My family doctor at their family clinic should be able to do that. Like it's, it's, it's asking it. Someone who's in a mental health crisis requires someone who specializes in dealing with mental health crisis to help them get through that fucking crisis. So you send out someone who has zero training on, on the, like the, the very nuanced um, uh, needs that someone in that situation needs. And then on top of that strap a fucking gun to their, their side and, and put them in a situation that, rightfully so might make someone feel uneasy and and on the defense it's it's a it's a fucking recipe for disaster Mm -hmm. and like you know it's i mean christ it's been it's been happening forever but i mean last year like i remember last year in 2020 just like four weeks in a row just hearing story after story after story of police showing up to a wellness check and that wellness check being someone who's in mental health crisis and that person either ending ending up dead, shot, dead, or ending up severely, severely injured. Mm-hmm. How, 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 much, how much do you feel? I mean, I know that this conversation around, around police doing things that police don't need to be doing shouldn't, shouldn't be doing because it shouldn't be in their scope of work and there should be more dedicated services for for these types of things i feel like that conversation we really started having a lot of that conversation uh in may after george floyd was killed 
and mm. you know a lot of a ton of conversation was happening about like what the police do and what the police should be doing how much do you feel like that has catalyzed how much that has catalyzed the this message to be heard in a different way like since because i think i mean no matter what pre pre george floyd being killed and black lives matter protests kind of exploding across the world pre or post this is a message that made sense regardless mm-hmm. but since then do you feel like that this has been a message that people have been more willing to listen to and mm-hmm. to put more work into 100% you know uh my co-founder and i you know rachel this is something that we started talking about almost three years ago. We we're trying to, you know, meet with people, get the conversation started. And everyone was kind of like, yeah, you know, we'll listen, but we're not really going to mobilize and really, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. So I don't know if your idea is realistic. You know, it doesn't seem like anybody wants to support you, that kind of thing. And um, so we were just kind of like, well, man, that's, you know, first of all, we're like, that's some bullshit. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, but, you know, after that, you know, we recovered and we said, well, we're still going to pursue this. Um, and, you know, it was, it was to some extent, there was some, you know, informality at that time and maybe some formality as well. Um, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to Rachel for really diving into like the, the research aspect of things. And, um, you know, me, I'm always trying to connect with people and network and um, strategize and prepare for when the moment does arrive. And well, the moment arrived and, yeah. Uh, the moment was, you know, May 25th, 2020, where, you know, George Floyd was murdered. And, you know, it just happened to be that, you know, in Toronto, very soon after that, uh, you know, a young woman uh, mysteriously died uh, after a wellness check um, when police arrived. And, you know, that, um, you know, brought us back to a situation that happened in April where a young man, um, right. a, a young black guy died when police showed up to his house and, you know, he ended up getting shot by the police and killed and, um, then, you know, there are other stories. I mean, things happening in the Maritimes, I'm sure you all know yeah. about, um, you know, we, we heard about it down here. Um, and, you know, all these things kind of culminated in opening this like window of opportunity to now have, you know, many conversations, but, you know, this being one of them, why are police the folks that we are sending as the default uh, to respond to someone in distress or for a wellness check or whatever we want to call it, um, you know. Yeah. And so then, you know, all of a sudden, everybody wanted to talk to us about it. It was, yeah. it was, it was really I mean, interesting. And, and not only not only talk to you about it, but but correct me if I'm wrong. The 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 city of Toronto is now planning to implement this program as a pilot uh, in the what, in the coming year. Is that is that the is that the plan? That's exactly it. So, uh, you know, uh, let me give you a bit of a timeline. So, I mean, yeah. George Floyd uh, was murdered in, you know, at the end of May. Um, and then, you know, the young woman I was talking about, uh, Regis Korchinski Paquette, um, mm-hmm. she died shortly after. Um, and then, you know, we, we entered into June. And, you know, by the end of June, uh, a motion was passed uh, to, you know, essentially bring this uh, issue forward. Um, and so then the city of Toronto put together a small team to do a lot of community engagement and hear from uh, the community if, if there were to be a pilot uh, of a service that was crisis workers workers responding rather than police, um, what would that look like? Now, where Rachel and I come in um, is, you know, we had done so much of, of the, the work and the research already. 
um, around uh, so much of the work and the research already around, you know, just what would these, you know, what would a service like this really look like? Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, we were kind of ready to deliver a lot of information uh, mm-hmm. to those who would want to build the service. And that's how we became involved um, as sort of the subject matter experts and, um, you know, the folks who can strategize and, and really think about how this would be implemented and, and roll it out. And we were also really good at community engagement, uh, you know, which is kind of more of like, you know, where I think one of my specialties is, is just kind of mm-hmm. interacting with people and, you know, building. Uh, but um, either way, I mean, whatever it was, the, whatever the magic formula was, I mean, we were able to get the ear of the city and become really close with them and work with them um, and support them. And they're doing a lot too. So it's not just us mm-hmm. um, sure. in, <clears throat> in kind of moving this conversation forward and taking the conversation to now, uh, you know, it got voted unanimously uh, by the city councilors in Toronto to move forward uh, to a, toward a pilot, well, um, four separate pilots really in the city that will run concurrently starting, um, I believe in 2022. Um, and then we'll take the data and, and what we learned from those experiences and hopefully roll out uh, a citywide uh, a citywide service uh, by 2025, 2026. So, What are those wow. four different pilots? What, what sets them apart from one another? Um, so three of them are, they're geographically based. So, you know, and they're geographically based uh, um, you know, determined by where a lot of the crisis calls are coming from. Sure. Um, so in Toronto, you know, the northwest of the city, um, the northeast of the city, and what we call downtown east, which is kind of where just there's a lot of um, homelessness and, mm-hmm. um, you know, things of that nature, everything that goes along with that. Um, and, um, you know, and then the fourth one is uh, specifically uh, Indigenous-led um, so to really, you know, be built for and, and by uh, Indigenous folks who are living in Toronto. Um, so the idea is to serve three communities that have a high incidence of making mental health calls with, you know, fewer supports, uh, as well as the Indigenous-led uh, support, or Indigenous, Indigenous-led pilot, uh, which is really designed to, uh, you know, well, let's, the reality is that different, you know, cultures and different peoples, you know, respond to different things. And, yeah. mm-hmm. um, you know, for Indigenous folks, I mean, there's based on history, there's just a mistrust of systems and um, also their own ways of doing things. So it only made sense. Mm. Yeah. I, I'm curious what the actual response uh, looks like, because like I, I see value in police support for, um, situations that could get violent yet. Um, and, and maybe correct me if I, uh, I'm just thinking about this wrong, but is it, so is it that there's a, uh, a crisis worker, whether it's a social worker who, who, I guess my, one of my questions is who responds and are they still supported by police or is there a different, um, category of, severeness for calls and is there like an assessment that's done on the phone how does that work are we, are we talking about right now or the ideal like the i <laughs> well that's both i guess <laughs> let's talk about the ideal because yeah. i think that's what's important i yeah. think i think the ideal scenario you know where should we be what yeah. should like what yeah. should be what is the perfect scenario here sorry about that 
door open. I almost got barged in on. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, you know, I, I think the ideal is to have, you know, uh, again, a team of crisis workers responding. And, you know, to your question, Brian, what does that look like? Um, you know, for us, there is a, a hope and a desire uh, that one of those people will always be a peer support worker. Uh, so someone who has lived experience of having a mental health challenge and moving through the system and navigating uh, because that knowledge goes a long way in knowing how to connect with someone else, um, identify needs and knowing how to respond to those needs, de-escalation, uh, navigating, connecting to services. There's so much embedded in the process of, excuse me, in the process of like navigating the system well enough to be better that you can then take that knowledge to support others in, you know, kind of following a similar template, um, or at least maybe even just discerning what the needs are. Um, so that's one person. Uh, the part that we haven't quite figured out is who that other person should be. And there are a variety of different opinions um, on who that other person should be, um, you know, whether it be a, a mental health nurse or whether that be a social worker or, you know, a variety of different things. Um, I'm not sure if we have an official stance on that yet, but uh, one thing that we do know is that there are certain skills that we want the teams to be equipped with. Uh, one of them being uh, having like a very uh, robust harm reduction framework mm. and, and understanding of what does, uh, you know, someone experiencing, you know, withdrawal look like? What does someone uh, look like when they're, you know, maybe high off different substances? Yeah. Again, um, the or, nuances of it all, right? Because it is such a, it's so, it varies so widely and that spectrum is so broad. And so to have someone who, who knows the, you know, knows the ins and outs of that really makes all the difference. And I, I suppose, like, I suppose with the pilots, like that's where the, that's where the crunching of the data comes in. You know, of like of looking at how this goes and 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 what you know what so far has been implemented, what worked, what didn't work. How do we like? How do we go back to the drawing board to to craft this into something that is perfect? Not maybe not. I, I shouldn't say perfect. Nothing's perfect, but to craft this into something that is ideal. You know, because again, we're talking about something that just doesn't exist. Yet yeah, something that needs to fucking exist. So like, yeah. it has to be built from nothing. It has to be built from scratch. Like, imagine there was no fire department and police responded to fires and had to put them out. Right? <laughs> it would be a it would be a total shit show. But, it, but yeah. it's crazy because we think of oh, fires are common things that happen that we need a dedicated force to fight against those yeah. things that happen. But yet we don't acknowledge the fact that mental health, mental illness crisis. Yeah exists where you need a dedicated yeah. service. But, to and and to again, to come back to what I, I, I sort of alluded to at the very beginning of the conversation five years ago, you know, the conversation surrounding mental health yeah. was very different than it was today. And even today, there is still so much work to be done to, to shift the way that we think and approach and look at m mental illness and mental health, because it's, mm -hmm. you know, not only, not, not only from a scientific perspective to like understand how the brain works and why, why we experience the things we experience and how we can treat those things, but also from a social standpoint of how do we manage someone who is in a, a mental health crisis without fucking shooting them? Yeah. You know, yeah. like yeah, that there's, there's that should never there's, be like yeah, the end that, game. You know what I mean? That's mm -hmm. yeah. That's, that's wild. That's wild. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that shouldn't be. It's, that's so wild. Like I can't, 
computed in my yeah, head. You know yeah, what I'm saying? But yeah. um, you know, uh, you know, for us, what really supported us actually is that you know there are places who have been doing this for quite some time, and probably the most notable one is um, you know it's a program called Cahoots uh, out of Eugene, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, they they've existed now for 31 years, so they have a lot of experience doing this. So uh, there are certainly some folks that we've relied heavily upon in terms of imagining. Uh, what the model would look like in Toronto and then also being able to, you know, meet with them and talk with them and kind of have that back and forth uh, to continue learning as we've gone along in this process of advocacy and supporting uh, the building of this thing in Toronto. Um, So, you know, the, but yeah, you know, the other piece is just like, you know, why, has why haven't we thought about this before yeah you know and you know and and, you know and you know going back to the the challenge of having mental health conversations you're absolutely right five years ago like i mean you know one of the things that really propelled me to like being the position that i'm in again is that nobody else was really talking about it so it's like (laughs) i was the guy who's you know was not ashamed to go on stage and you know tell my story to people uh, and, you know, people found that to be really powerful and inspiring. And, and uh, I just kind of built my name that way. And then, you know, the conversation evolved. And as the conversation evolved, right. other systems opened up and more opportunities came about. This being one of them, you know, I don't really consider it an opportunity. I consider it, you know, more of a thing that we had to do, um, an obligation uh, in society. But um, that's been a piece of it. But I, I think what you're also referring to is that, you know, when we think about someone in a, in a mental health crisis, we think they're scary mm. and we think they're dangerous, mm-hmm. right? Um, but why do we think that? Well, maybe one of the reasons is because the, the responders are police officers. And what do we associate police with? You know, we call police when things get a little too dangerous or scary for us to manage it. Mm-hmm. So let's call the police and have them deal with it because, mm-hmm. hey, that's what they're supposed to do. Now, when you're calling police to deal with, you know, or not deal with, but you know what I mean? Um, to respond to someone who mm-hmm. who's, who's struggling or in distress, you know, all of a sudden that, you know, that, that kind of bell goes off or that connection is made that, oh, mm-hmm. this person is dangerous because we had to get the police to respond to them, right? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know what it's like out there in Halifax, but in, in Toronto, I mean, we've got a lot of homeless folks downtown and, um, you know, with homelessness comes mental health challenges. So you, yeah. you'll, you'll see people talking to themselves and things like that. And so sometimes people do call the police. And if you're a bystander and police show up, you don't know this person who's in crisis. Um, the police show up and, you know, you don't even necessarily hear the ins and outs of the conversation or get any context. And next thing you know, the police are, you know, putting them in handcuffs, stuffing them in a police car. Mm-hmm. Maybe they get to an altercation. And you as the bystander, you see this and you're like, oh man, that person, oh, just fucking crazy. Yeah, um, which reinforces but, it for next time for like mm-hmm. that. those people seeing somebody having that situation. It's just a not, vicious cycle. Not it. to mention the fact that if they charge you with a crime in that moment and then it makes it even harder for you to get a job and harder to get access to services and stuff like yeah. that. When like if somebody who yeah. was responding had access to those resources to support yeah. them better, the outcome could likely be a lot better. And, a lot better. And five years ago, <clears throat> I mean, five years ago, and especially further back than that, the understanding of mental health was in such a bad place that, like you just said, the the that that you are that people having those types of experiences are crazy. That's that was the that was the default. 
And, and in the past, like past number of years, it's gotten better, obviously still a long way to go. But I mean, I can't imagine a 20 year old me not seeing somebody having like, you know, talking to themselves, doing, doing, you know, having a, a mental health crisis out in the streets, especially homeless people. We, you know, we have a, we have a pretty, um, we have a pretty, um, what's the word? Like, uh, th- there's a, on Spring Garden Road here in Halifax, there is a, a group of homeless people that if you live in the area, like, you know, you know, you know, everybody, you, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're there every day. You pass them every day. You talk with them every day. And, and if a 20 year old me is going, that person's crazy. 20 year old me was never thinking that person has addiction issues. That person has a mental health issue. That person has can't access it. Like I'm I'm not having that. And it's a mix of being young and that the conversation just wasn't evolved mm. for mental health, mm-hmm. you know? And so like you getting up and talking about what you're going through and doing the advocacy work that you do starts to kind of just put a, put a, a bit of a, a gap in that vicious cycle of, <clears throat> of people seeing, you know, somebody being responded to uh, by, by police and being put in handcuffs and maybe being charged or whatever, and starts to make us think about that situation differently and, and then talk about it differently. Yeah. The, the other interesting thing about that though, is even though 20 year old you, 20 year old <clears throat> me would have thought that that person's crazy. I never would have thought they were, um, scary or like like that they're going to cause harm so then it makes me brings me back to this point about sending the police to respond to them that's not what they need what they need is somebody who can mm-hmm. help them with those yeah problems that you identified well and like a program up in a program like you started asante is like is i mean it gives it police responding to that sort of situation it's not fair for the person and it's not fair to the police it's not fair to either party and so I, I have, I just have such high hopes for these pilot programs because I think that it, I think that it can't do anything but have better outcomes for the people that mm. need help and, and taking an unnecessary thing off of the very full plate of the police officer that is stretched so thin that they're, that they're just, they're, they're on the limit all the time mm. and taking a little bit off of that so that they can do their job better. Mm. that's that's you you nailed it man um you know so that's that's the ideal right you know but as we as we talk about these pilots you know realistically there are a lot of there are a lot of pilots that exist you know that governments kind of invest in and you know a lot of them don't really work out so for us you know the advocacy doesn't stop here the advocacy Mm -hmm. yeah it's only beginning yeah exactly right Mm -hmm. it's like we need to make sure these pilots are resourced in such a way that they have a chance to be successful. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Cause if, if, for instance, if you take one of these geographic areas uh, where the pilots are going to be running, are there enough teams to respond to the amount of calls that they're going to get? If mm. not, then you're just going to end up having police responding anyway. Mm. And then you, you're not actually doing the thing that you set out to do um, and not able to collect the data that you need to collect in order to, you know, move forward with, mm-hmm. with the, the plan and learn and build. is is there before we wrap here like that that you having said that right there makes me wonder if there's is there a way for people uh in the community you know specifically let's talk about toronto there's lots of toronto listeners listening to this right now or at least people in the gta are are there ways that people in the community can support and and help 
um, to ensure that that these pilots, uh, you know, succeed? Is there is there is there something? I, I mean, what, regardless of how small that act may be, what can people do to support? You know, uh, I think one of the first things, and you know, not to like plug ourselves, but I mean. <laughs> Uh, you know, go to our website, reach out toronto.ca and sign up to our email list. Mm. Um, and the reason I say that is because we are just so well connected now uh, with like the gatekeepers, so to speak. Uh, we provide updates about what's happening as we move through each step of the process uh, so that folks will know, for instance, when is a pilot beginning in their area? How do they access it? How do they let others know about it? That sort of thing, um, mm-hmm. which will support uh, support just, you know, people actually using the service when it does mm-hmm. arrive, mm-hmm. Uh, which helps us, you know, collect more data. Um, the more people that interact with the service, um, not only are we collecting data, but then they'll have a story to tell about their experience, um, which will continue to help us build mm-hmm. the service. They'll tell us about where the gaps are, um, all of these different pieces, right? So there's that. Um, there's also, you know, talking to your local uh, elected officials about, um, you know, maybe what you feel is needed for the pilot happening in, in your area, or if there mm-hmm. isn't a pilot happening in your area and you're, you know, dreaming of something uh, that will impact or, or be effective for where you, you're living, again, talk to your uh, locally elected official about it. Uh, because one thing that we have learned in this journey is that politicians actually answer the phone. Yeah. Call them. (laughs) They they, they, like actually do. Like, if you don't get them directly, you're going to get someone who can get you to speaking to them. Like, when Rachel and I started, we didn't have any credibility. Uh, You know, we were just two young people trying to get this idea off the ground and advocate for something. And now we've been able to speak to, uh, you know, 22 out of the 25 city councilors in Toronto and, you know, some of them multiple times and have like first name basis relationships with folks. Mm. And it just started from cold emailing people and saying, hey, here's our idea. We'd love to talk to you about it. Um, you want to set up a time? And most times they say yes. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Hey, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, hey, if you're a good politician and you That's, got young yeah. people knocking on your door to make change. <laughs> yeah. You better fucking you better fucking make that you know <laughs> like at least listen to them because you want that vote you know yeah. so that's so that's that's good or to hear. you want that vote or you should and, and in well, reality yes. want to fucking yes. make the make world change. a better yeah, place yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I when I I I know I speak for the, for the three of us right now when I say that when when these pilots are like off the ground when when you can't when you can make that phone call to uh to that person that is not the police tell us so that we can tell our listeners Mm. where to go, who to call, what the number is like when it happens so that we can put that out there. Like Jeremy said, we've got lots of people listening to the show in Toronto and the GTA and all over. So, you know, we want to be able to tell people like, Hey, you can do this now. Yeah. And this is, this is an alternative for when this is so that message so that we can help, you know, disseminate that message. Oh yeah. So, uh, Right now, uh, the idea that we're, when I say we, the city is kind of playing with is having two numbers that you can call 911 or 211. Mm-hmm. Um, and 211 is kind of the the, the, uh, the number you could call that uh, puts you in direct touch with the hub for all of the social services in Toronto. Um, so 911, because 
a lot of folks who are making uh, calls, you know, wellness check calls are not actually connected to the people experiencing the distress. Um, so maybe the only number they know is 911. Um, but, you know, if you're in the note, you can also call 211 and, you know, request uh, the exact same service. And, you know, so there are two different pathways mm. or, or connection points <clears throat> to have the service show up to wherever you need it to show up to support whoever needs the support. Cool. Asante Houghton, thank you so much for taking time out of your day today to sit down and uh, talk to us about your backstory and about the good work that you are doing uh, here in Canada. And hopefully this uh, this is just planting seeds that will spread and grow across our country and, and beyond. Thanks, man. This is really That's the hope, man. Today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah. You, Dude, you're a beautiful human being. <laughs> oh, I man. Thank you, you, Brian. Fuck, yeah. I appreciate that shit. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. And that is your routine checkup for this week. Sick Boy Podcast is produced by Lauren Sankey, Brian Stever, Taylor McGilvery, and myself, Jeremy Saunders. Sound design is brought to you by Donovan the Meerkat Morgan. Sick Boy Podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis. And a big shout out to Rich O'Coin for the intro and outro music. That is it for today. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.